Welcome to the Saturday Frights Podcast. I am your co-host, the Projectionist, and I bid you welcome to the Haunted Drive-In. Come, join us down in the vault with your host, Vic Sage, as we discuss the best in pop culture and retro-related horror films and television shows. <laughs> it's intermission time, folks, so hurry, hurry, hurry. Step right over to our refreshment center for the most extravagant array of refreshment goodies ever assembled under one roof. Enjoy breathtaking, mouth-watering goodies. All right, Projectionist. Looks like everything is working properly. The intermission has just started, and folks really seem to enjoy the first feature. Looks like we have a packed house tonight. Well, so to speak, here at the Haunted Drive-In. Naturally, Sage. When you are presenting a double feature with 1951's The Thing from Another World and 1955's This Island Earth, Would you expect the little people of Haddonfield to stay cooped up in their houses and watch the television set? I hear you, man. Plus, it's an absolutely beautiful evening. Of course, it always is at the Haunted Drive-In. Part of the magic of the place, I suppose. Yes, something like that, dear boy. I assume that there has still been no sighting of Bobby Joe and his Plagratkin. No one has seen hide nor hair of them, my friend. I guess they just decided to pick up and move on elsewhere while you were away. Doubtful. What was that? Nothing, nothing at all. What of intern Rockford J? Is he still searching for them? Definitely. In fact, we've all been spending our off hours looking for them. I don't think the folks in Haddonfield would be too happy knowing those bipedal monstrosities are possibly on the loose. Especially as they're creepy sentient beasts with an affinity for overalls. Speaking of Rockford J, hey Rockford, the projectionist and I were just talking about you, man. Any sign of the plague rats on level 14? Hey Vic. At the risk of the projectionist sending me back down to the quiet hole... Your visits to the quiet hole are only necessary when you need to be... <laughs> ...corrected, intern Rockford J. <clears throat> well, that may be. But the truth is, there are no signs at all of Bobby Joe and his kin. I have Steele and Barnes lending a hand. They are a little jumpy, though. They've heard what the plague rats have done to some of the vault staff in the past. That's understandable, Rockford. Yeah. We're going to head down to level 15 and try something new. We borrowed some of the projector cleaning fluid containers from storage. Let's see if that draws out Bobby Joe and the others. Sounds like a good plan, my friend. You guys be careful down there. I'll see you tomorrow. Will do, Vic. You two have fun talking about Alien. We are going to do our best, Rockford. Alien? Why did intern Rockford J say we are going to be discussing Alien? Because that is the subject of the show. We talked about this last week, remember? You said we were going to be presenting the theme from another world to the dear listeners on the next radio broadcast, Victor. No, Projectionist, I said for this third season, we should attempt to talk about John Carpenter's The Thing. Why do you think we watched 1979's Alien last night? Why do you think I programmed the 1951 version of The Thing from Another World for tonight's viewing, Sage? It is this ineptitude on your part that makes me wonder why I ever agreed to perform these radio broadcasts with you in the first place. No wonder you say the listeners have stopped tuning into the program if you... Projectionist, 
Take a look at the control panel. It looks like we're recording. Hello there, dear listeners. So good of you to join us once again for a new and exciting season. For your listening pleasure this evening, we have decided to discuss Alien. That masterful science fiction horror picture from the late Dan O'Bannon, as well as director Ridley Scott. Yes? Friends, as the projection is so eloquently stated, for our first episode of Season 3 of the Saturday Frights podcast, we are going to be tackling a big one, 1979's Alien. As I've shared on the Pop Culture Retrorama site in the past, Alien was a film that it surprises a lot of people that I didn't catch at the 62 drive-in of my youth, or even the local movie theater, but on the movie channel in what I believe was 1980. What a perfect way to experience the picture, eh, dear listeners, on a tiny television set. That is how you can enjoy the true vision of director Ridley Scott. Actually, projectionist, I caught it on the rather large console television at my aunt and uncle's house. In my youth, as I've shared on the show before, growing up in a single-parent household meant that during the summer and holiday breaks from school, I had to stay somewhere. While my father couldn't afford a daycare at that time, we were fortunate enough that my aunt and uncle didn't mind watching me until my father got off work. As an added bonus, since my aunt happened to work for the local cable company, that meant I was able to watch a whole bunch of movies on both the movie channel and HBO. I assume there is a point you are trying to make with your ramblings, Sage. So, for some reason, my father and I didn't catch Alien at any of the usual places when it was originally released on June 22nd of 1979. For what it's worth, it did receive a limited release starting on May 25th. My aunt, who happened to be a huge horror fan, apparently had seen the film and thought I would really like it. Of course, she had a talk with my father about it before letting me plop down in front of the TV with some snacks and soda. What did you think of the picture? I loved it, projectionist. Right from the beginning with that introduction to the crew of the doomed Nostromo. They were real blue-collar types that I was familiar with as my father was a factory worker. The crew of the Nostromo might be on a star freighter, but almost all of the characters acted like members of an interstellar oil rig. The film wisely decides to take its time getting to the horror aspects, letting you become attached to the characters in the picture before putting them through the ringer, as it were. (laughs) You're totally correct, my friend. I was really blown away by Alien. And while thanks to that local drive-in, in the 80s, my father and I did get to see Alien on the big screen, he didn't get to first see the film until it came out on Betamax, renting it in a handful of movies as well as a player at a local electronics store. I assume that the paterfamilias of your household enjoyed Alien? Absolutely, projectionist. And did you just say paterfamilias? Anyway, my father quite enjoyed the film and its 1986 sequel, probably even more. For myself, though, I think it's apples and oranges. Alien, when you boil it down, is a haunted house in space, where Aliens is a sci-fi action film with horror elements. Both are excellent movies, of course, but they are tonally different, even if they advance the story of Sigourney Weaver's Ellen Ripley. Were you scared by the titular alien of the picture? Oh, I most definitely jumped during the chestburster scene. In fact, I began to suspect something was up because my aunt was kind of hovering in the doorway of the living room during that moment. I think the scene that scared me the most though, and still really, really creeps me out, is the incident between Ash and Ripley. What about you though, projectionist? It seemed like you were enjoying Alien when we screened it. It is most assuredly a masterful film, Victor. Thanks in no small part to the screenplay provided by Dan O'Bannon, whose name the dear listeners might recognize from when we discussed 1985's Return of the Living Dead on this very show. 
Well, Dan O'Bannon wrote the screenplay to Alien, but the story idea was also thanks to Ronald Shusett, who would write the screenplay for 1981's Dead and Buried, and the two would end up even collaborating on 1990's Total Recall, the film adaptation of Philip K. Dick's short story, We Can Remember It For You Wholesale, along with John Povell and Gary Goldman. In fact, did you know the partnership between Shusett and O'Bannon came about because of 1974's Dark Star? Naturally, I'm aware of that fact, Sage. As I have heard it told, Dan O'Bannon wished instead of a comedic look at an intergalactic threat for his next feature to embrace the horror aspects of it all pinning a screenplay that had been entitled Memory, where a crew of astronauts are awoken from their cryogenic slumber to seek out a signal from a strange planet. Yeah, it apparently was only 29 pages at that point, though. The ship breaks down on the planet, stranding the crew, and they have to deal with what would eventually be an alien threat. Although, as it has been stated online, O'Bannon at this point wasn't even sure what the threat would be. This was around 1975, and the duo began working on another script that would eventually become incorporated into Alien. This science fiction film pitch was entitled They Bite. O'Bannon might have been attempting to get away from comedy, but I think his wit was in full force with the title of the screenplay. O'Bannon has said that with the title, he might have been influenced by the success of Steven Spielberg's Jaws. The story, though, as J.W. Rensler's in-depth and excellent The Making of Alien book points out, involved, quote, microscopic parasites that remained hidden for thousands of years until disturbed by an archaeological dig. Awakened, they took on multiple forms, such as a freakish insect slash dog, and wrecked havoc, going from one animal mutation to another, end quote. That sounds a little like 1938's Who Goes There by John W. Campbell, or even 1982's The Theme, Dear Boy. Well, being a huge fan of science fiction films, O'Bannon had admitted over the years that he sort of was inspired by everything he had seen and read in his youth. O'Bannon would be able to get studios to take a look at the script for They Bite, but it sadly never went anywhere. Although, one of those reasons was the writer insisted that he be allowed to direct the film. Shusett and O'Bannon would keep tinkering with the screenplay for Memories, which had become Star Beast with the latter thinking that, with a name like that, they could probably interest the likes of Roger Corman. In the 2003 documentary, The Beast Within, The Making of Alien, it is revealed that around the time that Shusett and O'Bannon started to seriously think about how to expand the script and begin the process of getting the film made, the phone rang. A Chilean filmmaker named Alejandro Jodorowsky telephoned me from Paris. Was it Paris, France? Or Paris, Texas? No, Paris, France. He had made an art film called El Topo, which was very well received. And this man over this transatlantic phone line claimed that he had the backing and the rights to make a feature film of Dune. I recall reading in the day about this ambitious attempt at adapting Frank Herbert's Dune into a feature film starring Salvador Dali, Mick Jagger, and even Orson Welles. You are correct, my friend. While I am a fan of the source material and even the 1984 adaptation by David Lynch, if this version of Dune had been made, it would have probably been one of the most trippiest things anyone has ever seen. There's an exceptional documentary from 2013 called Jodorowsky's Dune that is an absolute must-see, if you dig Dune, that is. I will, of course, be sure to include a link to that documentary on this podcast post on the Pop Culture Retrorama site. Anyway, O'Bannon was hired to be the visual effects supervisor for Dune. But here's the thing, that wasn't the only call he received around the same time. 
Thanks again to J.W. Rensler's The Making of Alien, it turns out that Gary Kurtz, the producer for a science fiction film from George Lucas called The Star Wars at that point, rang up O'Bannon to see if he might be interested in working on the visual effects. With both opportunities being offered to him, O'Bannon went with the one that would give him better pay and authority. And two weeks after those phone calls, O'Bannon had socked away all of his belongings in his storage unit and was flying to Paris. Looking upon it now, dear listeners, it appears that fate was placing O'Bannon squarely at a fork in the road, yes? Oh, most definitely. And you can't help but wonder what would have happened had Dan decided to go with Star Wars, right? Although, in the long run, who can say? Perhaps if he took the job with Lucas, we horror fans might never have been given the gift of what has come to be known as the Xenomorph, right? After six months, things fell through on the Dune film. However horrible of a time it was for Dan at that point, it did allow him to make the acquaintances of some very talented artists, such as Chris Foss, French artist Mobius, and H.R. Giger. Apparently, Mobius and Dan really hit it off. The two even contributed together on a two-part story entitled The Long Tomorrow for the popular Metal Hurlant magazine that was published in 1976, or Heavy Metal, of course, as it was known here in the States. In fact, Mobius revealed in his introduction to the hardcover collection for The Long Tomorrow that O'Bannon had been hired to replace an incredibly famous effects artist on Dune. He states, quote, I drew The Long Tomorrow in 1975, while I worked with Alejandro Jodorowsky on a film adaptation of Dune. Originally, Douglas Trumbull was to do the special effects, but that was not to be, so Jodorowsky hired Dan O'Bannon to replace him. Dan came to Paris, bearded, dressing in a wild style, the typical Californian post-hippie. His real work would begin at the time of shooting, on the models, on the hardware props. As we were still in the stage of preparations and concepts, there was almost nothing to do, and he was bored stiff. To kill time, he drew. Dan is best known as a scriptwriter, but is an excellent cartoonist. If he had wished, he could have been a professional graphic artist. One day, he showed me what he was drawing. It was the storyboard of The Long Tomorrow, a classic police story that's situated in the future. I was enthusiastic, end quote. So things weren't looking so rosy for Dan O'Bannon after Dune fell through. Thankfully, Ronald Shusett was there to help him through a bad couple of weeks, even letting him stay at his place, crashing on the couch. No money had come through for Dune, you see, so the duo thought they might cherry-pick elements of the screenplay from They Bite and get back to work on the script for Star Beast. It was Ronald who suggested to his friend that perhaps they needed to take from another story idea of O'Bannon, one involving a World War II bomber a B-17 that is on a bombing mission over Tokyo, until it falls under attack by gremlins, with the flying critters dispatching the crew of the bomber in really horrible ways, apparently. If that sounds familiar, friends, it could be because O'Bannon would use that story for a segment in 1981's Heavy Metal. Although, for the purpose of that animated film, instead of gremlins, you had zombies. After reading about that, I kind of hope someone can take O'Bannon's original treatment and do a live-action film now. So, the elements started to click into place. O'Bannon realized that no studio would sign on unless he could make them understand that Star Beast could basically be done, well, with a guy in a suit. In other words, something affordable to help the studio heads pry open those tight purse strings. <laughs> Well, yes, actually. One of the stumbling blocks that Shuset and O'Bannon kept finding themselves being stymied by on the script was after the creature revealed himself. Why didn't the crew of the ship just take it out with some kind of weapon? That answer came thanks to a friend of O'Bannon, Ron Cobb. The two had previously worked together on 1974's Dark Star, with Cobb helping out on special effects. It was Ron who suggested that the way to keep the crew from just shooting the alien or stabbing it was that it contained concentrated acid for blood, which really is perfect for also ratcheting up the tension. I mean, the crew is in deep space, and if the xenomorph stalking them wasn't scary enough, one wrong shot or attack could result in a deadly breach on the Nostromo. Cobb, by the way, would go on to work on such films as Conan the Barbarian, The Last Starfighter, Raiders of the Lost Ark, The Abyss, Robot Jocks, Total Recall, Titan AE, Firefly, and was even a consultant on Back to the Future in Real Genius. 
for DeLorean time travel and laser technology, respectively. What? Seriously, that's what it says on his internet movie database listing, Projectionist. O'Bannon, by the way, altered the title of the script from Star Beast to Alien when he realized just how many times in the screenplay that the word showed up. Here's the kicker, though. Remember how initially they thought that Star Beast might attract Roger Corman? Well, it turns out that worked. He was willing to finance the film, partially, and only up to $100,000. The duo assumed they could deliver Alien for $750,000. While O'Bannon and Shusett contemplated the offer, they had shipped the script around town, being turned down by all of the major studios for all manner of reasons, from violence issues to the fact that in 1976, sci-fi wasn't exactly a hot property. Then, through a mutual acquaintance, they caught the eye of Brandywine Productions, a production company that had been formed by David Geiler, Gordon Carroll, and Walter Hill. Yes, that Walter Hill, of The Warriors, 48 Hours, and Streets of Fire fame. Brandywine was set up with connections to 20th Century Fox, but while O'Bannon and Shusett were able to ink a deal with the production company, it sounds like at least Hill and Geiler were not really on board with the screenplay. So those two ended up rewriting the screenplay numerous times. Some online sources claiming it reached up to eight drafts, until finally 20th Century Fox agreed. And that was largely thanks to that little George Lucas film that took the world by storm, beginning in 1977. Science fiction films were suddenly in vogue. What exactly did Walter Hill and David Geiler not enjoy about Dan O'Bannon and Ronald Shusat's screenplay? It sounds like pretty much everything from what I understand. The one reason they thought that Alien might work, though, was because of the chestburster scene. Although it appears as if Hill and Geiler, while not credited on the screenplay, did have a ton to do with developing the character of Ash. So, with 20th Century Fox on board, Brandywine Productions began looking about for a director. While O'Bannon thought he was going to get to direct the picture, 20th Century Fox wanted Hill, who couldn't agree because he was working on other projects. However, after seeing Ridley Scott's 1977 debut film, The Duelists, starring Keith Carradine and Harvey Keitel, they made the offer for Alien and Scott immediately accepted taking inspiration from the likes of Stanley Kubrick's 2001, as well as Toby Hooper's The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, a film that O'Bannon made Ridley Scott watch. Ridley Scott ended up storyboarding the entire picture after agreeing to the job, and this apparently really blew the socks off 20th Century Fox, who decided to raise the budget of the picture by double their original offer. The next obstacle to bringing Alien to the big screen was the casting. As I've already mentioned, the brilliance of the film is the blue-collar type of characters. The Nostromo is hauling a mile-long oil refinery, carrying 20 million tons of processed ore. As has been described by the filmmakers, the crew of the Nostromo were basically space truckers. The final screenplay for Alien had seven human characters aboard the Nostromo, and it was Ridley Scott who penned backstories for each of them. At the end of the day, you have Captain Arthur Coblins Dallas, played by Tom Skerritt. Executive Officer Gilbert Ward Thomas Kane, played by the late John Hurt. Warrant Officer Ellen Louise Ripley, who was, of course, played by the esteemed Sigourney Weaver. The late and great Sir Ian Holm was cast as Ash, the Nostromo science officer. How very odd that Ash only had the one name, yes. As if something was off about him. <laughs> Well, a lot of this came from sources like the novelization, and even graphic novel that was produced for Alien, my friend. Joan Marie Lambert was played by Invasion of the Body Snatchers and The Bird's Veronica Cartwright. Her character acted as the navigator for the Nostromo. Dennis Monroe Parker, the chief engineer, was played by Yafat Koto. With engineering technician Samuel Elias Brett being played by the late and great, as well as extremely memorable Harry Dean Stanton. In fact, in a revisit of the film, as I understand it, for the Chicago Sun-Times, Roger Ebert, who didn't originally enjoy the film when it was first released, credited the age of the cast as helping Alien to stand out from the other horror movies of the day, saying, quote, None of them were particularly young. Tom Skerritt, the captain, was 46. Hurt was 39, but looked older. Holm was 48. 
Harry Dean Stanton was 53, Yafat Koto was 42, and only Veronica Cartwright at 30 and Weaver at 29 were in the age range of the usual thriller cast. Many recent action pictures have improbably young actors cast as key roles or sidekicks, but by skewing older, Alien achieves a certain texture without even making a point of it. These are not adventurers, but workers hired by a company to return 20 million tons of ore to Earth. End quote. Let us not forget to discuss that frightening, if little seen, design of the alien itself, Victor. The titular alien, a work of cinematic art by H.R. Giger. Yes. Absolutely, projectionist. It was Ridley Scott who was able to secure Giger for the film, as a matter of fact. Apparently, some of the suits at 20th Century Fox were not on board with the artist's biomechanical designs. And it took Scott standing his ground, pointing out that the alien itself should be disturbing as this was a horror film, to finally win them over. The director took a trip to Zurich with David Geiler and Gordon Carroll to help convince the artist he was the man for the job. Thankfully, Scott was successful, and H.R. Giger was in charge of providing designs for not just the xenomorph, but the facehugger and how the crashed alien vessel on the planetoid would look. I've read online that it was Carlo Rambaldi who was responsible, using Giger's designs, for crafting the headpiece that the late Balahi Badejo wore, a young man who, I'm sad to say, passed away at the far too early age of 39. Apparently, Badejo was sitting in a pub, and casting agent Peter Archer took note of him, and felt with his lanky frame that he would be the perfect candidate to wear the suit. And he absolutely was. While Carlo Rambaldi followed Giger's designs, he included some elements of his own to ensure that the jaw mechanism would be able to open, and that second set of jaws could shoot outwards. Now, I've read that Giger stayed in Switzerland for the most part, but he definitely visited the set a couple times, as behind-the-scenes photographs reveal, including taking a hands-on approach at working on the latex costume Badejo wore. At the end of the day, it took 14 weeks to shoot Alien, with principal photography beginning on July 5th of 1978 and wrapping on October 21st. This was done at the legendary Shepperton Studios. Interestingly enough, listeners, as I read online, the original ending of the film was going to be real bleak. While Ridley Scott decided to include an add-on to the film, in this case, the escape shuttle scene, which 20th Century Fox graciously approved and increased the budget again to what is believed to be $14 million. But the producers of the film held their ground on the fate of the alien. Scott thought it would be pretty shocking to have the xenomorph bite off Ripley's head and then enter a log entry into the computer, waiting for pickup from the company using Ripley's voice. Oh my, bleak indeed. Yeah, it would definitely have been more horrifying to say the least. After 20 weeks of editing and post-production, the film clocked in at being over three hours long. Various scenes that were cut out included Ripley finding that Brett and Dallas had been taken by the alien to use as hosts, what all us fans of Alien have come to call the facehuggers. In addition, there was a scene which I've read that was put back in the director's cut of Alien, where Lambert and Ripley have an explosive confrontation about the latter sticking to the regulations when Kane is brought back to the Nostromo after being attacked by a facehugger. The scene involves Lambert giving Ripley a head-turning slap to the face. Apparently, this took a couple of takes, until Scott asked Cartwright to really lay one on Sigourney Weaver. The looks from Weaver, Stanton, and Kodo are quite genuine, and friends, when Alien was released, it did very well for itself, earning $203 million at the box office. And that isn't even including VHS, Betamax, and the numerous reissues since 1979. Although, I found it interesting to read online that 20th Century Fox back in the day claimed they had lost money on the picture. Of course they did, Victor. That is an ages-old practice by all film studios. Well, I think it's about time we should actually dive into the synopsis for Alien. Just in case you're one of the few who have never seen the film and want to avoid massive spoilers, you can pause and check out the movie, and then come back and join us. Let's take a quick break. I think the projectionist has a little something special to share with you listeners. Indeed I do, Sage. How about a radio spot from the film's original release? 
space. No one can hear you scream. Alien, rated R from 20th Century Fox. All right then, just before we really do start talking about the synopsis for Alien, I thought I should tell you that with season three, we're going to attempt something a bit different. In the six years that we've been doing the Saturday Frights podcast, six years? And we still haven't reached episode 100 of this broadcast series? Well, there was about a year hiatus projectionist. Anyway, the show has continued to grow in style and format. We originally planned with not going into full spoilers, waffling back and forth on that idea until we just started doing a full synopsis for the TV show or film in question. So, with this third season, we will be giving an abbreviated version, focusing on the moments of the movie that really stood out, while continuing to provide interesting facts. At least I hope that is how all of this is going to play out. Oh, you are off to a grand start, Victor. <laughs> <sighs> Alien benefits from an astounding embarrassment of riches. As the projectionist mentioned earlier from the screenplay, however reworked it might have been, from Dan O'Bannon and Ronald Shusett's original take. And it should be noted that O'Bannon in particular, while not directing the picture as he had envisioned, did have a hand in the production of the film. Whether that be bringing in artists like Ron Cobb, Chris Foss, or even Mobius, although for that iconic artist it was only for a few days. Of course, Ridley Scott's overall vision of the picture and his skill as a director elevate Alien from what some might consider a B-movie plot. Naturally, there is that cast of actors. Projectionist, would you agree with me on saying that Alien is an ensemble picture? Most assuredly, Victor. Perhaps it has to do with those backstories that director Ridley Scott was said to have written for his talented performers. It is as if each character is an important cog, and when the alien begins to start picking them off, their loss is quite evident. That's a good way to describe it, man. Dallas appears to be a competent captain, but he also seems to have been worn down by his time working for the company. Kane sort of seems like the everyman link between the crew and the captain, whereas Ripley, while tending to stick to the rules, also shows an ambitious side to take control of a situation, perhaps even a rebellious side, which I feel we see an effect in Aliens, a result, of course, of what goes down in this film. Lambert, as apparently Ridley Scott explained to Veronica Cartwright, acts as a surrogate for the audience. She echoes the horror we feel when things start to go so horribly wrong on the Nostromo. I think that Brett and Parker are also everyman characters, but they are also the lifeblood of the Nostromo. They know every nut and bolt of the space freighter. Then, of course, there is Ash. Not only a company plant, but it's revealed in a horrifying sequence. He isn't even human, but an android. It is the performances by Sigourney Weaver, Ian Holm, as well as Tom Skerritt that I would say are the most memorable, dear listeners. Well, I sort of agree with you there, Projectionist. I would add that on rewatching Alien, you can see subtle physical clues that something is off about Ash. Really masterful work by home. But as I've already stated, the film works because of its ensemble nature. Of course, the soundtrack provided by the legendary Jerry Goldsmith is another element that really makes Alien stand out. It's truly otherworldly, and its quite often ominous themes helps to ratchet up the tension of the film. As Alien begins, we get a look at the impressive Nostromo. The space freighter's crew are in stasis, cryogenically frozen as they are on the long voyage home. The Nostromo's interior and exterior were designed by Ron Cobb. The bulky spacesuits worn by the crew during the film were designed by Chris Foss. The crew are woken up by Mother, their nickname for the operating system for the vessel, and their lifeline with the company which in Aliens, we would learn, is the Weyland yutani Corporation. The reason they've been woken up is a beacon has been picked up by the system, a transmission from what should be an insignificant and lifeless planetoid. The crew, in particular, Parker and Brett, appear to be rather grumpy that they've not awoken back home, but are being forced to investigate this planetoid as the company policy demands. With no extra pay for said work at that. 
Yeah, Parker and Brett are definitely not feeling they are being given adequate compensation for their work. For what it's worth, it's easy to tell that while this has been a sore point on the voyage, with Dallas almost tiredly brushing them off, it's Ripley in particular who appears to be more agitated by Parker than others. This might have something to do with the fact that Ridley Scott supposedly asked Yafat Koto to antagonize the actress on and off the set. I've read that Yafat did as he was asked, but felt bad about it as he really thought Weaver was a nice person. I'm not saying that I agree with the director's decisions, if it is true, but you can tell early on that Parker and Ripley aren't exactly drinking buddies. Landing upon the planetoid, the Nostromo is damaged, which means that Parker, along with Brett, are busy trying to repair the space freighter, while Dallas, Kane, and Lambert go out to see if they can find the source of the transmission, leaving Ripley and Ash to watch over operations. The damage to the Nostromo is something that Dan O'Bannon included in his original script. He felt that most science fiction films presented landings and such as smooth operations and easy, and wanted something different. Captain Dallas, as well as Kane and Lambert, find out the source of the signal or transmission is from a derelict spaceship. They decide to enter the vessel to investigate further, and really, can you blame them? This is an alien craft. Once they enter, though, they lose all communications with the Nostromo. Bad timing for Ripley, with the aid of Mother, to come to the conclusion that it's not exactly a distress beacon, but a warning to others about the vessel. Inside the derelict ship, the trio of explorers come upon the corpse of a massive and vaguely humanoid being. It appears that its chest area has been ruptured, and as we will learn in just a bit for ourselves, the damage was done from something escaping from within this strange alien. Also in the ship is a chamber with a vast amount of what look like some kind of eggs. Kane is investigating when one of them opens up. He has a few moments to be curious as he attempts a closer look, before a facehugger launches itself out with enough force to not only knock the executive officer off his feet, but it also shatters the faceplate of his helmet. Although nothing is mentioned about this, a few minutes later we see a kind of gel fills the helmet along with the facehugger, totally encompassing Kane's face. I've always taken it to be that the gel is a safety measure of the suit itself in case of a breach. As you might expect, Dallas and Lambert are quick to drag the now unconscious Kane back to the Nostromo. In one of my favorite scenes, Ripley refuses to open the door for them, stating the quarantine policy. Even when Dallas, her captain, orders her to open the hatch, she stands her ground. Thanks to Sigourney Weaver's performance, you can tell she's totally upset by having to do this. It would appear that the Nostromo science officer does not feel the need to follow the standard protocols. Quite true. Ash opens up the hatch, allowing Dallas and Lambert to bring in Kane. In the medical lab, along with his science officer, of course, Dallas attempts to remove the facehugger. Scott demonstrates right from the beginning how dangerous the facehugger is to the victim it's latched itself onto. When Dallas and Ash remove the helmet, sensing danger, the facehugger constricts its tail around Kane's throat. Attempting to cut one of the long finger-like legs that has wrapped itself around Kane's head, with the rest of the crew watching from outside the infirmary, is how, to everyone's horror, they realize that this new life form has acid for blood as that tiny cut causes a burn through a couple of levels of the ship. While Ash and the rest of the crew are stumped as to how to help Kane, it turns out that hours later, the facehugger releases their crew member on its own and dies. It would seem that Kane is perhaps a little confused as to the events that occurred to him on the strange planet, and remembers nothing about the facehugger, but he is otherwise the picture of health. Yeah, with some basic repairs to the Nostromo, the crew decide to leave the planet. And, after docking back with the ore refinery, are planning to go back into stasis and keep heading home. With everyone feeling a little relieved that Kane is okay, they decide to have a dinner before entering their cryosleep. Parker and Kane are joking about the quality of the food on the Nostromo when the latter begins to choke and appears to have a seizure. To the horror of everyone, with Kane screaming in agony, his chest ruptures in a bloody spray, with a tiny and extremely angry new life form hissing at them before shooting out of Kane's corpse and escaping from the kitchen into the Nostromo. There appears to be genuine looks of shock on the actor's face during this scene, yes. For good reason, projectionist, the crew knew that something was going to be emerging from the fake chess piece on the table, with John Hurt situated underneath the table itself, 
his head and arms sticking out from underneath that fake chest piece. They just didn't realize how much blood was going to be shot out at them. Plus the fact they were using real animal intestines and such, so the smell was gagging to begin with as I understand it. In particular, the look of revulsion on Veronica Cartwright's face is priceless because where she was situated in the scene meant she really got hit in the face with a large amount of blood. The crew of the Nostromo obviously are not going into stasis with this new alien life form on board, but knowing that it, like the facehugger, has acid for blood, their plan is to attempt to capture it or at least corner it in the nearest airlock and blow it out into space. So they have to make do with flamethrowers, electronic cattle prods, and trying to hunt it down with motion detectors, which results in the crew kind of splitting up to search for this unwanted intruder. They are unaware of how quick the xenomorph grows. In hours, it appears to have reached its full growth potential, which is about seven feet tall, with a sleek black exoskeleton with odd vertebrae protrusions from its back, razor-sharp claws, and a domed head, housing a second set of jaws, with of course its powerful tail and a deadly stinger-like tip. Which is why Brett is not only unaware of the danger when he goes after Jones the cat, but you can see why he would drop his guard. They are looking for a creature smaller than the cat itself. Sadly, the xenomorph attacks from above, holding Brett's head in its powerful grip, puncturing the technician's skull as he drags the body up into the ship and into the air ducts. Only Jones is witness to Brett's final agonizing moments. Realizing they are up against something even more dangerous than they first imagined, the crew of the Nostromo deduce that the alien entity must be using the air ducts in the ship. So Dallas decides to methodically search them, sealing them off one by one and using one of the flamethrowers to attempt to drive it back into an airlock and be rid of it. While Captain Arthur Coblins Dallas is indeed brave for entering the air shafts of the Nostromo in an attempt to protect his crew and drive out the alien, there is a flaw with that plan. He is locking himself in with the xenomorph itself. Sadly, that is the truth. Yet again, the crew, although perhaps not Ash in this case, still have no idea how truly deadly and cunning the xenomorph is. The scene is played brilliantly by Tom Skerritt and Veronica Cartwright, who is using a motion tracker to help her captain. You can tell that Dallas is rightfully terrified, and the whole thing is extremely claustrophobic and intense inside those air ducts. The alien gets the upper hand in a wonderful jump scare, illuminated quickly, giving us a second to register that it's reaching out to grab the captain, before communications are lost and with an electronic squelch signaling the end of Dallas's life, at least in the theatrical cut of the film as I mentioned earlier. Lambert, as the voice of reason in this case, is the one that thinks they should just pile into the escape shuttle and get out of Dodge. Ripley, though, reminds what is left of the Nostromo's crew, Parker, Ash, and Lambert, that the shuttle can't support four people. She's acting captain now, and decides they should stick with the idea of chasing the creature out of the airlock. As she now has command privileges, she decides to seek some answers from Mother, and finds out, instead, a horrifying truth. Yes, the company has been aware of the signal and possibility of alien life on that planetoid, and have instructed Ash that, at all costs, even at the loss of life of the Nostromo's crew, that the alien is to be brought back to Earth. Yeah, finding out they are basically being sacrificed for the good of the company is a little upsetting to Ripley. To say nothing of the fact that learning that Ash was a plant by their employers. As the horror of the situation begins to sink in, she is startled by Ash leaning in beside her, almost good-naturedly informing her that there's a good explanation for all of this. Losing it, Ripley grabs the science officer demanding answers, getting pretty physical with him, slamming him against the walls of the computer room. As she attempts to make contact with Parker and Lambert to let them know the situation, Ripley finds herself violently attacked by Ash, who now appears to have some sort of white fluid leaking from his forehead. Friends, I'm sure that most of you will agree that this scene is unsettling, to say the very least, for all manner of reasons. Ash attempts to kill Ripley by shoving a rolled-up magazine into her mouth, with the obvious intention of pushing it into her throat so she chokes to death. Thankfully, Parker and Lambert arrive and do their best to subdue Ash, but to their shock, after the chief technician hits the science officer in the back of the head with a fire extinguisher, 
He literally knocks Ash's head off. In an eruption of that white fluid, Ash's body goes careening around the room, screaming, continuing to attack until Lambert is able to use one of those cattle prods to deactivate it. Ripley makes the decision to reactivate Ash's head in the hopes of learning of a way to kill the alien. Unfortunately, the news the trio receive isn't what they wanted to hear. You still don't understand what you're dealing with, do you? Perfect organism. It's structural perfection is matched only by its hostility. You admire it? I admire its purity, its survival, all clouded by conscience, remorse, or delusions of morality. Look, I don't, I've heard enough of this, and I'm asking you to pull the plug. Last word. I can't lie to you about your chances, but you have my sympathies. That last line from Ash before Ripley shuts him down and Parker uses a flamethrower on his remains is chilling to say the very least, especially because of the sarcastic smile that Ian Holm gives while saying it. When I first watched it, and for a couple of years, I actually thought the android was being sincere. Now though, I truly believe he's getting a final dig in at Ripley. The turn of events causes Ripley, Lambert, and Parker to come up with a new plan, scuttle the Nostromo and the alien with it, and just take their chances in the escape shuttle. For any hope for the plan to work though, they will need a lot of coolant for the air support system on the shuttle. So, while Ripley primes the detonation sequence, Lambert and Parker tear off to collect as many containers of the coolant as they can. It would appear the alien has other plans, however, dear listeners. As they are collecting the coolant and making their way back to the shuttle, the Xenomorph attacks Parker and Lambert. They are seriously overmatched and are killed, with Parker appearing to die at the jaws of the alien, and Lambert, in a heart-wrenching scene of pure fear, being slain by the Xenomorph's tail. In a questionable manner. All the while, poor Ripley is priming the self-destruction sequence in the Nostromo's command center and can hear their agonizing cries of fear and painful deaths. Cartwright really sells the terror her character is experiencing in this scene. Interestingly enough, from an interview with Starlog magazine, the way we see Lambert die was not what was originally intended. Apparently, Cartwright said that her character was supposed to run off when Parker was attacked and hide in a locker. She was meant to die of fright from a heart attack. In fact, the sequence where the alien's tail is sliding by her feet, those aren't even her feet. This is an excise scene from Brett's death. You can see the character is wearing blue pants and white shoes, which is what Harry Dean Stanton was wearing. Cartwright's character has white pants and she wears cowboy boots throughout the film. How curious indeed. I will admit, I never noticed that myself, Sage. Hey, I didn't know either until researching the film, my friend. So, with Ripley being the only survivor, and thankfully being able to get Jones and put him in a cat carrier, the surviving member of the Nostromo begins the detonation sequence and heads to the escape shuttle, only to find her way blocked by the Xenomorph. In an effort to not get blown up, she tries to stop the countdown, but isn't able to halt the process in time. Thankfully, the poor woman is able to reach the shuttle again without the alien interfering before the countdown reaches zero and escaping with mere moments to spare before the Nostromo and ore refinery detonate. Unfortunately, the shuttle has an unexpected stowaway. Yeah. The way the scene is handled, Scott really makes you drop your guard. You truly believe that the Xenomorph was still on the Nostromo. The alien, though, has curled itself up into a compartment of the shuttle, and with an agonizingly tense moment, Ripley has to don a spacesuit without alerting the alien. Turning her back on the creature, she uses the shuttle's control panel to rouse the entity, and waiting long seconds that seem to stretch into minutes. She opens the airlock of the shuttle just as the alien is about to attack her, catching it by surprise and finally succeeding in the plan of blowing the xenomorph out of the airlock. The creature manages to stop itself being sucked into space by holding onto the inner frame of the airlock. So Ripley fires a grappling gun into its chest, which manages to puncture the chest of the xenomorph, but the gun 
gun is yanked out of her hands and becomes lodged into the open airlock doorway, allowing the alien to pull itself along the cable attached to the grappling hook towards the shuttle, where Ripley sees it crawl into one of the engines. While the alien might not need oxygen and can withstand the deadly cold of space itself, it doesn't do so well when Ripley briefly fires up the engines. It's torn from its temporary place of refuge and shot out into space. Finally, safe from the threat of the xenomorph, Ripley, after recording a final log entry into the shuttle's computers, reporting the deaths of her crewmates and the destruction of the Nostromo and its cargo. As the film ends, we see that Ripley and Jones are safely asleep for the voyage home. And I hope that was a shortened synopsis for Alien Friends. Doubtful, Victor. Highly doubtful. Alien is an exceptional horror film, and one that obviously launched an amazing franchise, with the added benefit of Ridley Scott enjoying it enough to revisit the universe when he helped to create two prequel films. To say nothing of the fact of how many comic books, video games, and toys this 1979 picture spawned. And I think that about wraps up our episode on Alien. I realize, of course, that with such an important and epic film, we probably could have gone on for a couple of hours. As always, friends, thanks for taking the time out of your busy schedule to listen to the show. The music you heard at the beginning and ending of our podcast was provided by Peachy. My co-host, The Projectionist, has his own Facebook page you might want to check out. Projectionist Haunted Drive-In. He manages to share interesting trivia on films on a daily basis, or sometimes just vintage movie posters and behind-the-scene photographs of some of your favorite films. I want to thank Rockford J for putting up with the abuse of The Projectionist on a nearly daily basis. I couldn't keep a lid on the vault without his hard work. He shares his own love of horror movies every single day on the Saturday Frights Facebook page. As for myself, you can still find me posting on not just the Saturday Frights page, but the Diary of an Arcade Employee, and of course the Pop Culture Retrorama Facebook page as well. Saturday Frights has an Instagram account, by the way. If you want to check it out, you can find it. It's simply Saturday underscore Frights. If you'd like to contact me with suggestions for future episodes, you can reach me at VicSage popculture at gmail.com. And for all things pop culture and retro related, feel free to visit us at the Pop Culture Retrorama site. Generally, we have something of interest to share a couple times a day. Of course, we owe a great deal of gratitude to the Retroist, not just for originally hosting this podcast, but for allowing us for nearly 10 years to share our love of all things retro. If you like the show, consider subscribing and giving us a rating over on iTunes. We are also available on Google Podcasts and Spotify as well as Stitcher. If you know somebody who likes horror movies and TV series, do us a favor and let them know about it. Help us to get the word out. As we end this show, why not listen to a clip from the film we'll be discussing next week? Captain Miller, I've got some problems here. has been beyond the boundaries of our universe. Who knows where it's been and what it's brought back with it. This has been a Pop Culture Retrorama podcast. Goodbye, and thanks for listening. The Saturday Frights podcast is not affiliated with or authorized by any of the businesses and individuals that have been mentioned in the show. All music and sound clips are the property of the respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. Audio clips are included for the purpose of review, criticism, and commentary only, and are not intended to infringe. You have my sympathies. <laughs>